I think maybe some of us are still recovering from that great meal last night, huh? Was that, was that amazing? Man, that was uh, wonderful. I, uh, they said they had a banquet, and I, you know, it's my first time here at the family camp. I didn't know what that meant. Um, that was pretty good barbecue. I, uh, I think I could eat that anywhere. That'd be great. We, uh, my wife and I had a chance to sit with the uh, Lloyd family, um, and they, they, they asked us to sit with them, which was great, and uh, I, it, was, it was just a wonderful experience. They love to laugh, and I love a family that loves to laugh, and so that was just a, a blessing. We enjoyed them a lot. That was really great. And then, after the banquet, we come right in and get fed God's truth, um, and, which was awesome. God's word is trustworthy. Um, Jericho, I mean, I, I just, you know, what, what uh, Terry brought out last night was just such a, such a blessing. You know, archaeology only confirms God's word. It never contradicts it. Um, and and, and it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, secular archaeological authorities are always trying to find, hey, this, is, this contradicts Scripture, and it always ultimately um, um, confirms God's word. And it's such a blessing, such a, we, we have a trustworthy Bible. And because of that, we can base our lives on it. Such a, such a blessing. I've really been enjoying the evening sessions. That's been great. Um, I want to start this morning with a question about a verse, Matthew 6.1. So turn there, Matthew 6.1. Um, we're actually going to ultimately be in Psalm 32, uh, but I, I want to start with a question about this verse, Matthew 6.1. It says, um, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, this verse is not specifically about repentance. It's a general warning. But what I want to ask is, how, how would we apply this to the topic of repentance that we've been, we've been thinking about? The, the New King James, if you have that, translates this as if it specifically applies just to giving. It says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. But the ESV and the New American understand it to be a general warning about why we do what we do. So how, how does Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. How would that apply to what we've been talking about, repentance? Huh? Okay. It could be superficial. All right. Good. I may have to pull the, you know, the, the college faculty member in me and have you guys raise your hands because I can, I can barely see you. And so when someone starts speaking, I'm like, it's generally over here. I don't know. Somebody there. I can't see the mouth moving. So uh, I may have to, have to do that. Who? Yes. I see that hand. Good. Okay, so you're covering your righteousness. I mean, you're, you're covering your sin, presenting yourself as if you're righteous, but you're not. Good, good. Other thoughts on that? Yes? I think when you go about your repentance, you only involve the people that need to be involved. Okay, all right, good. So when you go about your repentance, you only involve the people that need to be involved. Sometimes the way we, we say that is the sphere of the confession equals the sphere of the transgression. So those, those people who are who were aware or know or I sinned against, those are the ones that I talk to. I don't need to talk to more people than that. Um, and and um, the, you know, the, the idea that I might, I might be including other people 
maybe because I think it makes me look good or something like that. Good. Other thoughts on that? I think, I think one of the things that we have to be careful about is that um, when I confess my sin to someone else, you know, because I need to get right with them, that I, that I make sure I'm not doing it to impress them. Uh, and you say, well, I mean, confession doesn't seem that impressive. Well, I, I mean, obviously, it's a value in Scripture. So, so we, we can take something that should be this humble discipline, this, this, this uh, way of reconciling with someone, and we can make it about us. Look at, look at me. And I think that that's one of, the, one of the warnings in this passage. Again, it's not specifically about repentance. It's just a general um, warning about why we do what we do. There, I think there's a lot of pitfalls on the road to genuine repentance. Repentance is hard. It's not natural for us. We really need Jesus. I'm going to read this morning a lengthy quote from a blog um, by Samuel James. I'm not going to read the entire blog, but I'm going to read a lot of it. And, and he, he actually talks about uh, when he was in camp work, um, and I, some of the things he describes are not the dynamics that you would find at IRBC at all. Um, and, I, and I know that for a fact. They, I, I spoke at one of their freeze-outs or whatever it's called, one of their uh, junior high, and, and I, was, I have some experience in camp work from 30 years ago where I, about four or five summers when I was in college and after college, um, I worked at camp. It's a wonderful experience, great job, best job I ever had, could never do it anymore. I mean, you got to be, that's a young person's game. It is, uh, you're staying up, you're getting, it's a lot, of, a lot of work. But it was wonderful. But there were things that gave me pause at how they handled um, the gospel. And I, uh, so I, I want to I read this this morning. Uh, this, this guy, I don't know him personally, but he apparently had some similar experiences and uh, wrote them a lot better than I could. Um, and I, like I said, what he describes here is not characteristic of the way they handle things at IRBC. Um, here's what he says. Let me tell you a familiar story from my days in evangelical youth ministry. A teenager with roots in the church would make semi-regular appearances throughout the year, be respectful during Bible study and church, but otherwise seem non-cognizant of Christianity the rest of the year. Then one year, the teenager goes with the youth group on a week-long mission trip to a Christian camp. At one point during the week, the teenager has an emotional, probably tearful experience and tells their youth leader they need to be truly saved. This joyous announcement follows the teenager home where she stands in front of the whole congregation a couple Sundays later and shares her story of realizing for the first time that she actually needed Jesus in her life. Fast forward 12 months or so. Around winter, the teenager had largely dropped out of the Bible studies and fellowship nights she had been regularly attending. Everyone knows this teen is a Christian. They were there at the camp, but nobody really knows where she's been for the past few months. Now the youth group is taking another week-long summer trip, and she's coming too. And just like last year, at some point in the week, she gets emotional about Jesus. Also like last year, she asked to talk to her youth minister, and yet again, like last year, she comes to realize that she wasn't really a Christian after all. Through tears and hugs, she announces her newfound authentic faith and again brings her testimony home to the church. But like last time, summer doesn't last forever. By February, people are asking where she's been, and some are already becoming cynical. Just wait till she gets saved this summer. In my evangelical church experience, reconversions were as common as conversions, and sometimes more so. Sometimes the reconversion seemed less than authentic, but sometimes it stuck, too. 
No matter who it was that reconverted at a given summer, those of us in the group generally knew what had been going on for this person. They liked church, they liked their Christian friends, they enjoyed studying the Bible, but for whatever reason, the person they were at youth group was not the same person they were at school, work, or online. In a lot of cases, we even knew the sins our friend was confessing to the youth minister in the corner. We didn't know why last year's trip didn't stick. We only knew to pray that this one would. He goes on, looking back, youth camp trips were the practical expression of our muddled um, Baptist ideas about once saved, always saved. We believed that. We also believed each tear that fell from the usual suspects each summer. If we sensed a tension between our group's annual ritual of really getting saved and what we said about what we believed about losing one's salvation, we didn't lose sleep over it. After all, one can be genuinely mistaken about their own soul, and that they can be mistaken more than once, right? But here's what has bothered me for a while, he says. I'm beginning to think that the summer reconversion ritual said more about our church culture than it said about tearful teens. Confessing you were a bad Christian last year was a significant social risk that could be met with suspicion and shaming. Confessing that you weren't actually a Christian at all, but you are now, was just good news. Did you catch that? I'm not saying that these friends were definitely Christians or were definitely not. I don't know that, and I'm glad I don't know. But as I've encountered more evangelical culture as an adult, I've seen and heard enough to convince me that many church-going evangelicals have a far more vibrant theology of getting saved than they have of ongoing repentance in the life of a believer. Evangelicalism's mentality seems to be that repentance is what non-Christians do when the Holy Spirit tells them that they've been living a phony life. What do Christians do when they're convicted of sin? Well, we're not really sure because we're not really sure what to think of Christians in sin. Reconversion offers many evangelicals the emotional catharsis of acknowledging sin without the social shaming or awkwardness that comes when people who claim to be Christians acknowledge sin. If you weren't really a Christian, but you are now, wonderful, enter into joy. But if you actually are a Christian and you have to talk about sin that you're not entirely sure how to address, well, how close should we stand next to you? How contagious is this? One of the biggest tragedies of evangelical spirituality is that we've neglected the Bible's tender, compassionate words to Christians. We've reduced Christian practice to avoiding the non-respectable sins and presenting the gospel to sinful unbelievers, trying to get them to convert and leave all that sin behind. But we've missed so much of the immense patience, loving kindness, mercy, and encouragement in the Bible toward real believers who are struggling against the sin that so easily entangles. Maybe it's because we don't know our Bibles. Or maybe it's because our vision of God is too much like ourselves. We think of him not as a father who picks up our falls, but as the gatekeeper to an exclusive club that demands that old imperfect members buy a whole new membership to keep the club tidy. I wish my church experience, he says, in closing, had seen more repentance and fewer reconversions. Jesus promises, after all, to forgive and cleanse the unrighteousness we confess to him. Better to be who we really are in front of our loving Father than to just find a new mask to wear. That's the gospel. Is it evangelicalism? I think that's really interesting. Um, thoughts on that? that resonate with some people's experiences? 
that our churches were really good. And again, I, um, I have always rejoiced when someone has trusted Christ and told me that they trusted Christ, even if they told me the same thing last year. I, I, I am happy, happy that they trusted Christ. But I do wonder if um, we really have this mentality that, that if I'm struggling with sin, it's not repentance I need. It's I must not be a believer at all. That we don't, we don't imagine that Christians actually struggle with sin. Um, that we think reconversion is easier than repentance. But we we do know from Scripture that some sins cannot be habitual or the person is not a believer. We do have passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Ephesians 5, 5 and 6. Those are all passages that tell us that there are some sins that habitually practice, and I really do believe that that's what Scripture is saying there. It's not saying a one-time, but a habitual practice of those particular sins, like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, um, is indication of a person who is not a believer. And so when I was pastoring, those would be the types of sins that we would confront a person on. And if they continue to resist over time, we were, we were very patient. But ultimately, we applied Matthew 18 in church discipline in some of those situations because we actually believed not that believers can't sin, but that the believer who does ultimately wants to repent. And, and it's, it's the lack of repentance that ultimately results in someone being disciplined from a church. I think that's interesting. Like I said, I don't think that's the, the perspective of the camp here. They are encouraging um, teens to grow in godliness, to, to repent. And I, I just wanted us to be thinking about that, that that it is important for us to consider the fact, how, how do we handle a brother or sister in Christ who's sinning? It, do we immediately jump to the fact that, hey, they must be unsaved? There's, there's, there's a few things wrong with that. Um, one is, unbeliever, uh, believers can struggle with sin. And two, I think it really minimizes our own struggle, that, that we act as if we're not struggling with sin. I mean... If you only identify sin as, you know, the three big ones, when I was, you know, growing up, that was smoking, um, drinking, and probably going to movies. Um, those are, those would have been the, the three big ones, okay? Uh, might have been wearing, you know, pants, I don't know. Uh, um, that might have been another fourth one. Um, if you only identify sin that way, then, then you, you create a righteousness that you can keep, right? I mean, honestly, when I was growing up, it wasn't that hard to go to movies. Actually, one of my trivia questions for, for uh, my, my college students sometimes is, hey, how old was I when I first went to a movie? And uh, they're, I'm not going to tell you, um, but they're blown away because that was the environment I grew up in. Um, and if you create an environment like that where you can... You have a righteousness that you can keep, and it's all out here. It's all out here. It's not internal. You're not actually dealing with the sins that Jesus seems concerned about. Covetousness. You know, I, I could not go to movies my whole teen years, and I could have an amazingly covetous heart. But that didn't bother me. 
didn't bother me at all. I think that's one of our problems with that, is that we really don't imagine that repentance is something that should actually characterize us. So when Martin Luther, 500 years ago, says, that's, you're supposed to have a life of repentance, we're like, what is that? What is that? Let's look at Psalm 32 this morning. That's actually where I, I want to get to. This is a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of repentance. Some think that it was written about the same time as Psalm 51 and about the same sin with Bathsheba. If so, it would have followed Psalm 51 um, as, as far as chronologically. And in Psalm 32, um, we find here first that David rejoices in forgiveness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Hopefully we're all in the same spot here. So he expresses his joy in receiving forgiveness. That's how he starts this out. Who could argue with those first two verses? I mean, it's wonderful to have your sins forgiven. We get a definition of God's forgiveness in these two verses. If you look at it closely there. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So, so what, is a, what is God's definition of forgiveness? It's that the sin is covered. It's that he doesn't count their iniquity against them. So think about that. Is that what forgiveness looks like in your life? Right? We, we say we forgive only to bring it up later. Some of us are especially skilled at this, right? I mean, we file it away. Okay, the next time he says that, the next time she says that, I can pull out the big guns and point out their failures. David says the reason why forgiveness was so great because his sin was actually forgiven. God didn't hold it against him anymore. That's the picture of forgiveness. It's covered. We, we say Forgive and forget, and that's not actually accurate. There, frankly, there's some sins you, you, you just could never for, forget. That's, that's impossible. That's not the standard. The standard is, are you continuing to hold it against that person? That's how you know whether you've forgiven or not. Is this something you continue to hold against them? Um, so is that what forgiveness looks like in your life? Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, or like God in Christ forgave you. So that's how we're supposed to forgive, like God has forgiven us in Christ. David received it, and it is this wonderful experience. You've experienced it too, obviously, if you've been saved. It's great, and we should never get over it. But it's also wonderful to be honest with God. No deceit is what David says in verse um, 2. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. We need forgiveness, and forgiveness, rightly understood, leads to transparency. This is true both, both vertically and horizontally. So it's true both with God and with others. So help me out here. I'm making this statement. I want you to kind of think through it and, and answer this question here. How does forgiveness, rightly understood, lead to transparency with God? How does it lead to vertical transparency? If I actually understand what forgiveness is, how does it lead to transparency with God? I think it's over here. I'm hearing a voice. Okay. All right. There we go. Okay. Go ahead. One more time. Okay, good, good. Yeah, he already knows. He's omniscient. 
There's nothing you can do that surprises God. He's not like, oh, man, I did not see that coming. God has never uttered those words. That's never been true of him. Okay? How does forgiveness rightly understood help us be transparent with God? In the back. Okay. Good. Good. Other thoughts? We're going to we're going to I'm going to ask the next question here in a second. How does forgiveness lead to transparently with transparency with other people? Um, but obviously, if we understand that forgiveness is complete, purchased by Christ's blood, we can be honest with God about our present sin, and we need to be transparent with God. When God saved you, we, we, we know he forgave all past sins and all sins that were present at that time. Did he forgive all future sins? Yes. So when God saved you, did he know what sins you were going to commit after salvation? And yet he still saved you. I mean, that, that's the amazing aspect of God's grace. If I knew how you were going to stab me in the back in the future, I mean, I, I would hold that against you now, even though you haven't done it. But that's not God. So the reason I can be transparent with him is because forgiveness is complete. There's nothing I can tell him that he isn't already aware of and, and under the blood of Christ, hasn't already forgiven if I'm a believer. Isn't that amazing? So I can be transparent. Right? Forgiveness rightly understood allows me to be transparent with God. How does it allow me to be transparent with others? How does forgiveness rightly understood allow me to be transparent with others? And maybe some caveats that we have to add in here that you're probably thinking of already, and that's fine. Um, hedge your answer if that's, if that's what you want to do. But how does forgiveness rightly understood allow us to be transparent, open and honest with other people? Yes? Okay, absolutely. So, so from, the, from the point of the person who sinned against, it allows us to, to forgive them, to recognize what God has done for us is way greater. And in fact, Matthew 18, the whole point of that passage is when I refuse to forgive someone, I'm acting as if sins against me are greater than sins against God. Because God's able to forgive it, but I act as if I have a higher standard and I can't forgive it. Um, that's, that's a very dangerous position to be in, Absolutely. How does forgiveness rightly understood allow me to be transparent with other people, to be honest with them, to admit my sin to them? Yes? Okay. I had a hard time hearing you, but it sounded like you were saying you're, you'd be more transparent or more free to offer or, or to, to confess if you knew they were offering forgiveness. Okay. Good. Good. Anyone else? So I, I, I think it helps us. So, so if we're offering forgiveness and receiving forgiveness, like Scripture would tell us to, we can be honest. We don't need to hide our sin. We don't need to hide it from each other. And even if we don't receive forgiveness from others, and that's the caveat, right? The fact that we have it from God still allows us to be transparent with others. Other people may hold it against me, but God doesn't if I confess. I mean, what can another person do to you now that God has forgiven you? They, they could shame you, obviously. They could yell at you. They could be bitter. But they cannot send you to hell, which is what you deserve. It's what I deserve. Any power they have over you is actually temporary. David is right. 
It is good to know, not guess, not hope, but actually know that your sins are forgiven. Then David starts the psalm that way with this great statement about, man, so thankful that God forgave me. And then he goes, let me tell you what it was like when I was hiding my sin. So then we see here that David concealed his sin in verses three and four. David concealed his sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. So David claims that there are actual physical effects to unconfessed sin, that his bones wasted away, that he groaned. So what does David mean by that? I mean, are these, are these the physical consequences to certain sins, like you know, alcoholism can destroy your liver or fornication could lead to an STD? Is that what David is talking about? Because the truth is, some sins don't seem to have physical effects, right? I mean, most don't, probably. Your idolatry normally doesn't. Worry certainly can affect us. Um, I'm a grade A worrier. I know how to do that. I know how to um, uh, struggle with trusting God. But many idolatries don't seem to have direct physical consequences. So what does David mean here? I think what David is telling us is he's talking about the chastening of the Lord. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, he says. It's it's the fact that David faced God's discipline. It's the same discipline talked about in Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read this to you. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's Hebrews 12. Um, the entire chapter pretty much is about the, the discipline we face from God. Um, I, I had parents, maybe I mentioned it here, that, that took discipline very seriously. How many of you had parents who actually spanked you when you were growing up? Okay. This looks like a congregation who can, you know, uh, commiserate with me on that. Um, I, would, I can agree with those words that it did not seem pleasant. In fact, it says it doesn't always seem pleasant. It never seemed pleasant, honestly. Um, did you have you know, the one parent that you wanted to spank you as opposed to the other parent? Sometimes. In our family, with my kids growing up, that was definitely my wife that the kids wanted. You know, Mom, please, you discipline us. Um, um, and honestly, she probably was handling it well. I was probably too severe, and that you know, God has graciously helped me grow. Unfortunately, my kids are all grown now, so, you know. Uh, well, we'll you know, uh, that, you know, hopefully the next generation will get it. Um, but I, we, we've, we, we experienced that. That's what, that's what Hebrews 12 is talking about, the fact that God disciplines us. Um, one of the most startling things that happened to my children was one time we left them with a family that was babysitting and, uh, them for us. My wife and I went out, and we came back, and this family, uh, this person said, yeah, had to, had to spank your son, 
and um, you know it really worked out well. He you know could tell that this was this was a single um, guy who did not have kids, um, and he would see, yeah it worked out really well. And I was shocked. Um, I, you know my parents. I, I mean I, I went to schools when they still spanked you at school, so I, I probably shouldn't have been shocked from someone outside the family spanking. But I just I just I just it just could, I, we did not have this conversation before we left our kids there, um, that that was an option for them. And, and they never, uh, he never babysat our kids again. Um, I just couldn't imagine spanking someone else's kids. That just was, and that Hebrews is saying, why would God discipline us? Because it's actually a sign that you are in the family. That's why God disciplines us. It's actually a good sign. That's a good thing. Um, it's, it's, you know, it would be shocking if someone outside your family disciplined you that, when you're a kid. Th that's the picture here. So we all know that, that, that parents are responsible for their children, and so they're the ones who handle that. So, so we, we, don't, we don't necessarily like the discipline that, that, that God says he gives us in Hebrews 12. It doesn't seem at the moment to be joyful, but it's still good news for us because one, it confirms that we're in the family, and number two, he says it develops holiness in our lives. That's what he says in Hebrews 12, that, that he did this for our holiness. Um, it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So David concealed his sin and was disciplined by God. Silence about sin is actually harmful. We need to be believers that are transparent and honest about our sin. We cannot be putting on airs or pretending something we're not. We need to be First John 1 people that walk in the light. A repentant person comes clean about their sin. They're honest. They're transparent. Is that you? Are you getting better at that? I hope you are. Sometimes I think we wonder what Christian growth looks like with, with certain things. And um, I, I think with, with uh, confession of sin, it, it looks like s several things. So one, that I, I, I more quickly confess my sin. So maybe you know, you're, you're one of those stubborn people that holds on to it for a while and you know you're wrong, but you still, and so maybe that was for, maybe you could go a week doing that. So now you're going three days. That's actually growth. Is it where you're supposed to be? No. But, but that's actually growth. So, so it, happens, it happens more quickly. Um, sometimes it even happens immediately now. That would be growth, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm making those confessions uh, with, with no excuses. Maybe I had excuses before. Um, and I'm, I'm uh, uh, asking for uh, forgiveness. I'm, I'm actually not just saying I was wrong, but I'm actually asking the person. And again, we don't like asking the person for forgiveness because that puts us in a position of need. And yet that's, that's biblical. We should ask them for forgiveness. So, so those are some ways that we could say, hey, growth is actually happening in my life in this area. A repentant person comes clean about their sin. David then confessed his sin, verses 5 through 7. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. 
You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. So what characterized David's confession of sin in these verses? Well, first, we see that he owned it. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And we've talked about this. This is exceptionally hard for us to do sometimes. You know, it annoys us and other people when they won't admit they're wrong, but we don't like to do it either. Um, We get stubborn. David admitted his sin. We make excuses. We dislike admitting that we fail, that we sin. But he owned it. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you. Secondly, he didn't try to hide it. He said, I did not cover my iniquity. That's what he says. God wants us to live transparently. We shouldn't have anything to hide. So I teach biblical counseling at Faith Baptist Bible College. Thankful for the opportunity to do that, to to, uh, influence um, men and women that are going into ministry. I am regularly surprised in marriage counseling, which is the vast majority of my counseling when I was in um, um, pastoral ministry was marriage counseling. Some people, uh, you know, maybe, they, maybe they're mostly dealing with addictions or mostly dealing with people who are depressed. Most of mine was marriage counseling. And I, I would too often come across this experience where a husband normally, but sometimes a wife or a child, was protective of their phone or computer. I have never understood why you would have a phone that your spouse does not have access to. That, that is a huge warning sign. I, 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 I've not seen that turn out well. I've tried to think of ways that maybe you have, you know, company info on there or something. I don't, I don't but I, what I see over and over again is a wife coming to me and saying, yeah, and, you know, well, my husband wouldn't let me look at his phone. He was always very protective of that. It's like, that's, there's, there's no reason for that. Um, my wife has the, the code to my phone. She actually, there's two faces that open up my phone. Mine is one of them. Hers is the other one. She has access to that. Um, I, there's that type the problem is you, you have something that, you know, is more powerful than any computer in, you know, like 1980 in your pocket. You have access to all sorts of, of, of um, illicit material. And you won't let your spouse hold you accountable. What do you have to hide? When you're trying to keep something from others, you're changing the channel when people come into the room, or you're hiding your texts, or you're not being forthcoming about the events of your day, that is, that is a symptom of hiding. That is not good. David is saying his repentance was characterized by, I didn't cover my iniquity. I'm not trying to get away with it. I'm being honest about who I am. That is really significant. He verbally confessed them to God. He actually names them out loud in confession. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, he claims. This is more than just saying sorry. Actually calling sin what scripture calls it is important. Calling it a mistake or a fault is not the same as calling it sin. And calling it sin is not the same thing as mentioning the specific sin. A simple rule is the more specific your confession is, the better. The better it is for you, but easier it is for the person hearing you to forgive you. If, if you go to them and tell them, hey, I'm sorry for what I said yesterday, and you're not, if that's as specific as you get, they should still forgive you, but it is harder for them to forgive you than if you actually 
tell them I was demeaning to you, I was, I was defensive, um, I was unkind in what I said, um, I put down your ability, you know, your relationship with your mother or whatever it was that you were attacking. And, and you mention your sin specifically. It makes it far more easy for them to grant forgiveness. Ken Sandy um, has done great work for um, the church. Uh, he runs Peacemaker Ministries, and he has what he calls the seven A's of confession. So this is something that he came up with. It's really, it's really excellent. Let me read it to you here. He says, first of all, address everyone involved. So all of those whom you affected. So there were times as a dad, far too many to count actually, where I sinned against one of my kids in front of other kids, or I sinned against my wife in front of the kids. And it wasn't good enough for me to just ask my wife for forgiveness. I wanted them, I wanted to do that in front of my kids so they knew that I had been reconciled with my wife. That, that, that mom and dad had gotten reconciled. They observed me sinning, and so they need to know that dad got this right. Um, and so address everyone involved, all those whom you affected, in, including whether they were just observers or whether you sinned against several people at, at the same time. Um, and if you think about it, a lot of times you can, find, you can realize that your sin wasn't against just one person, but, but several other people. So address everyone involved. Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe. We've talked about that. Don't try to excuse your wrongs. If you only knew how hard I've been working this week, you'd have patience with why I acted that way. That's an excuse. Don't do it, okay? Admit specifically both attitudes and actions, not just the things, the, the, the physical things you said and did, but actually the attitudes that that conveyed. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. Express sorrow for hurting someone. This was... Uh, so I grew up in a family where my parents insisted that we ask each other for forgiveness, um, and it, which, which is a blessing. I didn't realize that that was you know, unusual in Christian families. Um, my parents made us, I had to say to my brother, um, I was wrong, will you forgive me? I had to say the seven hardest words in the English language, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And that was great. I got to Bible college, and I remember sitting against a roommate or, or someone, and I would ask them forgiveness, and they would look at me like I was an alien. And I'd say, hey, and, you know, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And they would say, oh, yeah, yeah. And they would try to brush it off. And I realized quickly that that's not the case for every family. Um, so I, I'm thankful for that. My family helped me with that. Um, it, you know, unfortunately should have had more impact on my marriage. I, my wife actually helped me uh, be quicker to admit my sin. Um, I, I, don't, I don't mean that. That sounds negative, okay? I don't mean it that way, all right? I mean, by God's grace, he used her gentle demeanor to convict me and help me change, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, but one of the things that I didn't do was acknowledge the hurt. I would, I would just give facts. I'm sorry I said that particular thing. But I would never say something like, you know, Laura, that probably discouraged you because you put so much effort into this particular aspect of our family, and here I came in and just blew it away like it was no big deal. Um, that really helped me grapple with my sin better, but also helped me in, in asking her for forgiveness, to, to, to recognize that it's not just specific things I did, but they actually hurt the person. And so thinking through how did I hurt this person makes your confession more specific and, again, makes it easier for that person to forgive you because they recognize this person's actually thought about this. They thought about how they've sinned against me. Um, 
accept the consequences, number five, such as making restitution. This doesn't mean that the person that was offended can justify their anger and silence towards you as a consequence of your sin. That is just unforgiveness. But, but accept the consequences. What, what are things that I need to do to, to, to fix this? And then number six, alter your behavior. Change your attitudes and actions. Um, that, that, that Without change, it's not really repentance. Number seven, ask for forgiveness. Actually say the words... Will you forgive me? You don't assume that they've forgiven you. You must ask because that at that critical juncture is where the sin can be removed from your shoulders and actually placed on theirs if they don't forgive. That's not why we do it, okay? Um, but, but if you don't forgive someone, you're sinning. Now, I realize there's all sorts of different situations, we are incredibly creative when it comes to our sinfulness, okay? So there can be all sorts of different situations. We're, we're, there's a lot of things. I mean, I do a whole series on forgiveness. Um, there's all sorts of questions that come up about this. I'm giving you some general principles right here. And one of them is that when a person asks you for forgiveness, if you're unwilling to ultimately forgive them, then they're actually clean and free and now you have the sin on your shoulders because you've been unwilling to forgive as Christ forgave you. Mark eleven twenty five. 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If you, if you stand praying, forgive, if you remember that someone has, that, that you haven't forgiven them. Luke 17, 3 and 4, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's what Luke 17 says. Frankly, if someone asked me the seventh time in a day to forgive them for the same sin, I, I'm probably not like you guys, okay? I'm a little bit cynical. I might actually think that the first couple times, maybe they weren't really repentant, okay? I might actually think that. But what, what Jesus says here is that the reason he uses seven is because I'm supposed to actually give them the benefit of the doubt. It's a ridiculous number. If someone sins against me seven times in the same way in the day, and they every time they come to me and say, will you forgive me? I'm supposed to assume that they're actually repentant, and I'm supposed to forgive them. So that's why when you confess your sin, you actually ask for forgiveness. You're giving them an opportunity to be reconciled, to deal with it in a way that would please God. David, in Psalm 32, encouraged others to confess their sins and find the forgiveness that he had found. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. What he means is troubles won't overwhelm the person that has kept a short account with God. Those that actually know the freedom and joy of confessing sin and receiving forgiveness can't help but tell others, do the same. Do the same. you gotta, you got to get it right. You, you can enjoy the same freedom that comes from having your sins forgiven. What do repentant people do? They confess their sin. They admit it. That's the way to forgiveness. David found it. So can you. So can I. There is no repentance without confession, but it is hard. I do not like to admit my sin, but it is the doorway to forgiveness, which means it's actually the doorway to joy. I want your marriages here to be characterized by transparency, by the intimacy that only comes through honesty about who you are. 
You're not dating anymore, okay? You landed the fish, all right? Okay? Be honest about your struggles. Admit them to each other. Be honest about who you really are. That will help your marriage. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Chad told me he was actually going to be with the teens, so I get to dismiss you here this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace to us through your word, your trustworthy word, your perfect word. God, we, we can trust it when it talks about archaeology. Sometimes, Lord, our struggle is doubting it when it talks about things like repentance, confession, and forgiveness. And God, may we realize that it is just as trustworthy there. When you tell us that we're to be people characterized by open confession, by honesty about who we are, by genuine repentance, by pursuit of holiness, and, Father, by genuine forgiveness of others. God, we, we pray that you'd help us to be those people. Help us to have marriages that sing, Lord, because you've been gracious to us. In Christ's name, amen.